Okay. Hey, welcome to, to the Regeneration Podcast. I'm Michael Martin here with my my buddy Mike Sauter. How's it going, Mike? Good, my friend Michael. What's uh what's new in the Great Lakes state? Uh it's been hot. It's I don't know if it's been hot there. You guys are both in New York, right? Well, my, a- my son from Columbus was visiting. He just arrived this morning from Columbus, Ohio, and he said just a scorcher, a scorcher of a summer they're having. Um, it wasn't. Well, it hasn't been that bad here. It's interesting. Now we'll have to do the, a podcast on this one. So you know, I dabble in cloud busting, <laughs> right? And uh, so I really we'll talk only about you, the Kate. Uh, well, yeah, I'm, Kate you know, Bush song. Kate Bush is cool again, and I, I'm in the right place, right? right is uh, but so we were on here. We've had a decent amount of rain uh, for the last not crazy but we because we, we did have drought um i'd say part of june and then <laughs> my wife said you better turn that thing on and i turned that thing on and we've had a decent amount of rain i mean i think every week we get about an inch of rain and and i i was worried because it was so hot and it was the garden is, was getting kind of kind of dry even though i was watering so i put it out for a little while and i thought i missed the cloud i thought i missed this the the rain so i put it you know i turned turned it off and then it wasn't supposed to rain and then last night my my daughter and i were watching a film and about 11 o'clock all of a sudden we had thunder and lightning and it rained like cats and dogs for about a half an hour huh. and we had three quarters of an inch of rain in a half an hour but anyway so, we'll talk about that at another yeah time. we'll direct our viewers or listeners to listen to uh kate bush the sound is called cloud busting right and then that's right i'm, I'm sure that's new to like 99 percent of even the listeners of this weird well podcast. Here, well I, I don't want i don't want to go there but i didn't th- i didn't I, I i made the thing out of desperation because about five years ago we were getting so much rain that all of our gardens were flooded. We couldn't grow anything. I was just, how are we going to feed? Because we have a CSA. How am I going to feed people? And so I, I had some pipe and wood in the barn. And I, I said, I'll just make one and see if it works. Because you, you, apparently you can use them to make it stop raining. Yeah. And it works. Our guest today, too, coming from a climate hotter and drier than uh, upstate New York or central Michigan. That's right. J- Joe Kikasola, it is so nice to have you with us. Oh, it's great to be with you guys. Looking yeah. forward to it. Now I have a story about Joe and his wife Linnea, mm-hmm. who was an opera singer. I mean, so uh, this is gosh six years ago because we're about to uh, launch uh, Jesus the Imagination number six, and when we did number one, my publisher and uh, who was it? Uh, Plow Magazine. Yeah. That's right. Or Mere Orthodoxy flew me to New York for the launch of Jesus the Imagination One, which appropriately, from considering my genealogy, it was took place at an Irish bar in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. And who do I meet but but Joe Kikasola, who I had just, I think I had just met you through Facebook at that point. Yeah. And I was thinking about what I invited you to come and talk to us. I, I think I talked to you and Linnea almost the entire night. You know, and I was like, I should probably talk to other people. But I was having so much fun talking to you two. I didn't want to leave. It was wonderful. Uh, and so that's that's how I met Joe. And Joe Kikasola is a Did professor. you have an article in the first one, Joe? Mm-hmm. Uh, Did you have an article? I, I don't believe so. Uh, okay. But I, you're, you're, the whole Christian arts world is uh, important yeah. to you. 
So, but um, but so so Joe is a professor at Baylor University, which is how he introduced me to himself to me that day in New York. I said, "Is it Baylor in Texas? You really came a long way to go to, to for this." <laughs> and but actually, Joe works for Baylor in New York. That's right. Right. Oh, okay. And uh, it's it's called the Baylor in New York program. It's sort of like combining an internship and a study abroad sort of model. So students usually in their last year of college who've gone through the film and digital media department, uh, but also maybe journalism, communications, anybody who's related to media uh, can compete to come up to New York and spend a semester up here. And they do internship work during the day. Uh, and then they take classes at night and do kind of fun field trip museums and uh, kind of engaged learning experiences on the weekend. That's so cool. fascinating. Well, schedule, but it's super fun. And it's, and it's a good place to do it too, right? Oh man, I, it's really a great privilege for me to be able to do that particular yeah. job, which I've been doing about 20 years now. So, And I have to say that Joe also does a fantastic impression of Paul Schrader, which he, <laughs> oh, <laughs> which he shared with me that night in New York. And uh, yeah, and you Paul Schrader from the David Letterman show, the music guy. No, Paul no, Schrader, the, the screenwriter and director. I know the director's name. Okay, I wouldn't know if you were well, doing an impression of him. I wouldn't know what it was. Well, I don't he, think I've seen him interviewed. In fact, I was when I was preparing. I I forgot that Paul Schrader directed that remake of Cat People. Did. way back in the day. Wow. Which I love that movie at the time. It's very weird with Natasha Kinski and uh, Malcolm. What's his name? You know, the guy from from uh, Clockwork Orange. What's his last name? Dow McDowell. Right, right. Yes. Malcolm yep. McDowell. What a weirdo. Yeah. But, uh, and also Schrader is the, Michael know this, uh, he's the, he's uh, one of De Niro's, uh, not De Niro's, uh, Scorsese's go-to screenwriters. And he also, uh, 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 among other things, he did uh, The Last Temptation of Christ. Right, right, right. Um, so, so. You know, actually, it was wonderful thinking about the, doing this uh, interview with Joe because it made me think my life with film, too. And I remember this is kind of weird. I don't know if this, you guys had this experience, but I grew up in Detroit and there was this art film house that showed art films, but also really bad alternative films. But it was a mile and a half from my house. I could walk and pay a dollar fifty to see a movie, and my friends and I would go there, and we would see Monty Python on the Holy Grail, or we'd see uh, a boy and his dog, or whatever it happened. I think we saw The Exorcist there as well, <clears throat> and uh, I think that's probably where I first got got the taste of art films, and then it, which really hasn't left me. And then I taught a course at Mary Grove College for a while on religion and film, which is a lot of fun to teach. Uh, and I was so honored when, when I met Joe a few years ago that here was a guy who actually did that, hmm. you know, and he was interested in film in the same thing that I'm interested in literature, which is that place where transcendence can be disclosed in that medium, right? And so first of all, Joe, I'd like to just ask, how do you, how did you become a film guy? How did, how did, the, how did bite your biography bring you here? Well, uh, one of my favorite directors, and I, 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 so much so that I wrote a book on him, is uh, Krzysztof Krzyszlowski, the Polish filmmaker. And his, he's known in America largely for doing a trilogy of films, Blue, White, and Red. 
um, that are, is being reissued right now, literally. It's out in some theaters in select cities where they did a 4K restoration with former cinematographers. And Kishlovsky's passed now, but um, when he was asked this question, he almost always said the same thing, which was, I, I just don't know how to do anything else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, he, why did you? He was very self deprecating. And he said he didn't think he was very good at making films, but he was less bad at films than everything else. So that's what he had. <laughs> um, and th- that's sort of how I feel about getting into film myself. I know a lot of really brilliant people who are really amazing film scholars, and I'm just happy to be in their company. Um, I know a lot of really brilliant filmmakers, and I've made a few films myself, none of which you've heard about because, you know, I'm not a brilliant filmmaker. But what I did discover over time was I really love thinking about art and trying to understand what makes it work. And I do do, I think, a pretty good job of that. And I have dedicated more time to it than most. So I speak into that space of theory and practice for practitioners and filmmakers who want to make films that mean something and for philosophers and theologians and other types of thinkers that really want to consider how films mean something, right? And that's the space I'm always speaking into. It took a long time to get there though. I, I, when I was in, in, uh, in college, I didn't know what I want to do, which if there are any college students listening right now, I just want to encourage them that that might be the very best place for you to be in. Because uh, college really, in my view, shouldn't be about um, getting a job. It should be about discovering uh, who you are as a person and how God is building you uh, in, into, uh, into a creature for his purpose and for his glory. And that can inevitably take you in directions you don't expect. So this is a chance for you to focus on just trying lots of things and learning lots of things. So I didn't know what I wanted to do, and I majored in English and literature, and uh, and I picked up a double major pretty quickly in music. I thought I was going to be a journalist, and I have worked as a journalist a, a, a bit, and um, both be- during college and after college. And and I picked up the second degree in music because I just really loved music. And then I by the end of college, I thought I would go into a musical career as a vocalist. Um, I was also a drummer in a rock band, but I didn't think I'd have a rock and roll career. Uh, but I thought I would actually go into opera um, and into classical music because I'd really come to love that. Um, got to the end of college, and I'm not going to dress this up. I, <laughs> I didn't get into the top conservatories in the nation. And my wife got into two of them of the four that we both applied to. And we weren't married yet at the time. That's another story, but uh, we were dating at the time. She got into two out of the four and I got into zero out of the four. And at that point I could have looked at second tier graduate schools or I could have looked at maybe just trying to break into the industry, it wasn't really called that, but, and I just sort of realized that maybe I didn't have to do that as a career. I knew it was gonna be hard. I knew that there were people who had to be musicians, no matter what it cost them. And I really admired that. But I sort of realized that that maybe wasn't me. And it, I shouldn't try it if it weren't was not me. So then it was just a question of, what is all this going to add up to? 
And as a Christian, I had to believe in faith that all of that was part of God's economy that was going to matter <laughs> in my life. Like it wasn't wasted time to study all of that and not go into journalism and not go into classical music. And what was that going to be? But I literally didn't know what to do. <laughs> so on a lark, uh, my dad taught at a uh, university in Virginia called Re Regent University. And I, and I thought, well, I, I guess I could see what they're offering in the fall or sorry during a may term you know literally right after my college graduate sure. and i can i got free tuition there so i thought well maybe i'll just sit in on some classes i wasn't even thinking i'd necessarily enroll <laughs> uh and, and there's a whole thing about going back home and graduate school living with my parents that really didn't want to do but it also god was kind and knew better than i uh, so uh, in, in short story, uh, I sat in, uh, I took a class on Hitchcock because that looks the most interesting of all the courses that were offered during the term. And there's another course offered uh, on film noir. And I thought, okay, well, that'd be interesting. So I just did it literally thinking I have nothing at stake here. And within the first couple of classes, I thought, wow, this is totally what I want to do. And I could see how all that background fed into helping me understand film, which frankly, I had one really great film course undergrad, but that was all I had. And I had never really picked up a camera in any meaningful way. So I enrolled in the film school there. And, um, and after that, you know, I thought I would be a filmmaker, which I, I still continue to work on film and video projects. And I was a TV producer for a time, but, um, but I really just found myself continually called back to that base of, of thinking about what all these things mean. So I thought that was going to be a short story, but maybe it was a little bit longer. Uh, I loved every story. part of it. Yeah, because it's, <laughs> it's a uh, good story. Yeah, any, I think any young person can relate. They find it takes more and more courage to go undeclared and to explore. So it's increasingly, I find, they're finding it harder to do that, to, to hear somebody who did it. I know I myself did it at a certain point. I said, I'm just going to do, uh, you know, when students graduate, young people, the, the greatest prayer I can pray for them or blessing is to say like, I hope you have the good fortune that for you work is also play. It has been my good fortune in life. Uh, we've lived very simply, you have to be willing to do that. But you know, your, your story is more inspiring than you probably know, Joe. Oh, Absolutely. Well, I appreciate that. At the time, it just felt like a series of failures, <laughs> right? You know, yeah, yeah. and I just had to kind of push back against that and say, well, it's not failure to not know it's failure to not be obedient, right? Mm -hmm. And yeah. I didn't even know what obedience looked yeah. in that moment, but I just, it really just came down to praying a lot and what are the best of my options and see what happens. Mm -hmm. That's Actually, like, that's the world tells you that's like the worst place you can be, <laughs> right? And, and, uh, and maybe it is in some circumstances, but for me, it ended up opening up a whole world. I just really, did not expect at all. And, and that's actually I'm, I'm my very, own path was very much like that, where that's that's how you see how grace works. You know, and, and it reminds me of the story of Parsifal, where he just doesn't know what the heck he's doing, you know, and, and he and life leads him into transcendence, into mm -hmm. himself, right? Into the relationship to the Holy Grail. Right. But but not on his own merit, not because he had to figure it out ahead of time. 
And I, and so, so yeah, actually what you say resonates so much with my own experience. I had no, I, I never intended on being an English major, <laughs> but I was a humanities major and they canceled his major the first week I was in school. And then I had a dream that this guy with an English accent wanted to talk to me and draft me. And then I go to my class the next morning and the professor says, the head of the English department wants to talk to you. <laughs> so, okay, whatever. Right. But so that's really a cool story, Joe. And, you know, so Hitchcock, my, my, my daughters are, are in a Hitchcock kick and a noir kick. Um, is the, was there a film that in, in your experience or director where this interest you have in transcendence and, and what you call in the subtitle of your book on Kieslowski, the liminal image, is there, was there a film or director where that really struck you? And in and, and relationship to your life of faith, too, right? Oh, my goodness. Uh, okay, so I'm going to, there, there's two, there are so many films in that period. And that is the, that is the wonderful grace is like, you know, I, what I just said about taking college as a time to learn everything you could. I was given this additional grace, totally unexpected to spend two years watching and trying to make movies. And so I just, you know, I set out for myself, you know, what's the list of films I need to know? And it's like 300, 400 films. And I just tried to get through that list as best I could, you know, and that was an incredibly fertile time. So I can't boil it down. I'm not sure that these are the two ultimate films, right? Um, but uh, some really powerful moments that I can remember were, um, one was, in, in sort of a negative example, like if we're gonna talk about like negative theology almost, right? Was uh, I was going through a particularly hard time personally uh, for various reasons. Um, and, and I think it was my first year uh, of film school there. And the professor, uh, a guy named Andrew Quick, who I still dearly love, we're good friends. Uh, he was worked for the BBC for years and they became a professor in Virginia. And, and he showed, and in I in 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 forget which class it was, but uh, he was a fan of European film, particularly 1960s modernist type stuff. So he showed Bergman's Persona, which if you've ever seen it is a weird movie. I mean, it's like about an actress who suddenly stops talking in the middle of a performance and nobody knows what's going on with her. She seems perfectly healthy, but she just won't speak. They had to drag her off stage. They put her in the institution. The nurse who's attending to her said, you know, really is trying to break through and says, I think what she needs is to get away from this place. Let's, what if I took her to this summer uh, villa kind of up in the lake district, you know, up on a lake in Sweden. And we just had some alone time together in a, in a more hospitable environment. And, mm -hmm. and the director of the institution says, by all means, go ahead. What happens after that is incredibly strange. And we start discovering the nurse has her own issues and, the whole movie becomes a really potent meditation on what it means to be a person, on identity. And Bergman's suggestion and throughout that whole thing is, you have no idea. <laughs> you don't know you <laughs> Great answer. And, yeah. and just when you think you're the healthy one, you discover how sick you are. And, um, and it, it's not a pretty story, those two. But what happened was we got to the end of that. And I'm not going to give away too much what happens. You should go watch the movie, right? If you haven't. Mm -hmm. 
but um, it has incredible artistry, things that happened in that movie that I had never seen on the screen before that I thought, wow, this guy is incredibly bold. Um, and of course, now I've watched a lot more Birdman. This guy, he was just that, this new guy to me at that mm-hmm. time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and he, but uh, so the, the lights come on and, and Andrew says, so what did you think? And a lot of people looked very, very puzzled. Not a hand went up. It was just crickets, except for me sobbing in my chair. Uh, <laughs> and you know, Joe, are you going to be okay? And I got myself together and I just said, I, I don't know what to tell you about that. But that was one of the most moving experiences I have ever had. And it took me a couple of days to unpack that. And I realized that the film was just in experiential terms showing me how impoverished my own sense of self and identity was. And at that point, I, it was prophetic because I had, I had two choices at that point. I could kind of go the Bergman route because Bergman was not offering a lot of hopeful suggestions at that point, but he was very forcefully and unsparingly pointing out the problem, which I perceived to be true. <laughs> yeah. Um, and 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 then the other direction was you could lean on your faith. And at that time, frankly, I was considering, I never told anyone that, but I was considering leaving the faith. Uh, I was in a crisis at that point. But what it did was that stark choice was, well, if I don't wanna go the Bergman route, then what does the faith have to offer me? So I plunged into kind of a theology of identity, like trying to discover what the Lord would tell me about that. The verse he drove me to is, is uh, the Lord drove me to was in, in Revelation and speaking to the different churches, says, I will give you a new stone, a white stone uh, with, with a new name on it, known only to him who receives it. I didn't know what that verse meant. But I suddenly interpreted that and understood it to be then that understood it to be not a new name, but only new to me. It was a very, very old name that belonged to me is the name that I had been known by since the beginning of creation. It was this this notion that the Lord knows us more better than we know ourselves and anyone knows ourselves and is holding our identity and gives us back our identity <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, when all things come to their uh, redemption. And so this idea that God, whatever I was and what all the ways I was misperceiving myself and all the ways I was posturing and the ways I was flailing around, not knowing who I was, what I want to do, I'd stumbled into film school. Was I really ever going to be a filmmaker? I mean, did I, who was I to think I could do that? You know, I had all these questions running all of the time in my head. And I just suddenly got this reassurance that, uh, God was going to tell me who I was and I was just going to have to chill out a bit until it became clear. And um, that was so powerful. And I would not have gotten that. I don't think if I hadn't watched the movie of a very disenchanted lapsed Lutheran, uh, you know, Ingmar Bergman saying, you know, so there's a great irony there because he left the church for various reasons that, weren't my story, but he still had this incredible compulsion to tell a truth. And I maintain that that is a kind of negative transcendence because it opened up a void 
And that void did not look good to me, <laughs> but the void was real. And the question is, is there someone who fills voids or takes them away? Or is this some kind of indicator of, or transforms voids, right? Um, we could talk about whatever those answers is, right? Yeah. You know, but the second story, which is much shorter, and we can talk about it at length if you want, is uh, I also, around that same period, watched my first Andrei Tarkovsky film, and it happened to be Andrei Rublev. And I still think to this day, that might be the greatest film ever made, <laughs> uh, at least for me. Uh, I, I've shown it to many people who would disagree. Uh, it doesn't always resonate with everyone as much as it does with me. But Tarkovsky is in full form there. All of his um, artistic sensibilities, his adventurousness, but also his spiritual sensibilities. And that film is also about calling. And it's about an artist who encountering the various horrors of the world enters a place of absolute spiritual crisis to the point where he stops painting, just like that actress in persona stops speaking. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't frankly know what to do. And he floats around and he figures out how to listen to God again. And he hears God in ways that he never expected that he would and through vessels that he never expected he would. And so that, was an abs and that has a much more positive transcendent feel it's hard to talk about without spoilers for the world for the movie mm -hmm. but well, I yeah i think they're both both examples you use are two men who face the abyss absolutely seriously i mean i think in all, all the tarkovsky i've seen it there that's in every single film mm -hmm. and what do you do you know he doesn't shy away from that Right. It's not it's not God is not dead, <laughs> which is the worst movie ever made. But uh, it certainly is. Why uh, did you watch it, Michael? I don't know. My friend kept telling me how good it was. And I watched it. somebody said, who well, gave you like Cheetos mashed up with and a I'm sneaker thinking, bar. Man, and they, you it, know, if, have, if heaven is a, is a new newsboys concert, just give me the flames. Right. Mm. But uh, but but I that's that's so. Uh, amazing what you say, what you say about those two two filmmakers in those two films joe because that, that is something well and certainly in what passes for 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 christian art in a lot of different places that's the one thing they don't do yeah is face that because unless you face that you know you're it's it's a it's an invented world that you live in right yeah yeah absolutely who, who do you think is giving like a glimpse even if we dialed it down like um many levels like who in a, in a kind of a popular film so i've seen both those films and i can't agree with you more joe i also really really appreciate how one director took you you know he went kind of the atheist approach and it created that void behind me is a, a picture of a, an author i became friends with stephen Vizinchi, who I didn't read through all of undergrad. I started reading after undergrad, but this was an author that spoke to me and my mother was dying of pancreatic cancer. And a book this guy had written explained the world to me. It was about the role of chance in our lives, which we, again, that we don't take into account enough. And I had to write to him back, you know, before the internet. And I said, but you, everything you say makes sense, but you're, you're an atheist, you know? And I was about to go to grad school to take an MA in theology. And he wrote me back, and this isn't Catholic triumphalism, but for him, he thought he had been raised by some Benedictines, and he thought, you know, the Catholic worldview was the only one that made sense. But he had seen his dad 
in school, the Hungarian schoolmaster shot by the Nazis. So he just couldn't, he was never going to process uh, the theodicy of that question. Anyhow, what I really can identify with is, you know, uh, coming up against somebody you admire so, so much. And this person took the other, the other path. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know that there is a filmmaker working today that I have encountered mm -hmm. um, that has quite achieved what both Bergman and, and Tarkovsky did. That's no shame. Yeah, right. <laughs> I just think that, you know, those, those guys were up there. I mean, and uh, it, it probably won't be evident to anyone who's up there in our generation, if there is one, for another 20 years. Those things kind of come in retrospect in some ways, right? I'm not sure that even Tarkovsky, certainly some people knew that Tarkovsky was all of the genius that he that he was at the time, um, but maybe not as much in his day. So uh, as we herald him today. So it's a hard, hard question to answer. Uh, I don't wanna put equivalents, but I can tell you, uh, you know, films that have moved me for particular reasons that align with the same reasons that I mentioned in these other films. Um, I, I think the Dardenne brothers in, in Belgium, um, and they are still making films. I mean, they're older now, but they're still putting them out, which is incredible. I haven't seen their latest, but I, I hear was played at Con this year. But um, and and uh, my friend Joel Mayward has a really good book on them that's that's okay. coming out soon. Uh, I believe this fall, so I was able to review it for the publisher, and I was really delighted with what he did with them. It's one of the first kind of full-scale theological treatments of their films. But when I saw their film Le Fil, which is the Sun, uh, it, it, it was. Um, I'm sorry if my French was wrong there, but uh, that that was an incredibly moving experience. And it's not like those other two films in that the style is much more what we'd call naturalistic or, you know, older term would be like a cinema verite thing, but it doesn't have the same kind of political edge that verite had. It's really just about trying to be present with actors and, and the actors, the dialogue, everything is incredibly natural. Mm -hmm. um, and so you're really sitting with people for long periods of time. And these people, without exception, are spiritually searching. And the Dardens were raised Catholic. I think they're much more agnostic or even in recent years, a suggestion maybe they've turned to atheism. But they, but they have absolutely said publicly and through their films, they still think that the, the notion of the sacred is imperative for human life. Mm even if they don't can't quite believe that it's real they just can't imagine life without it kind of thing uh, i hope i've done justice to them in that 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 film is about the struggle for forgiveness and it does not make forgiveness look easy because it's not any film that makes forgiveness look easy is is selling you something that's not forgiveness, right? Yeah. Um, and, and so uh, it's a gripping performance about a father who has lost his only son. And so there's a whole Christological resonance in there as well. And the void is felt in incredible terms. This guy's life is really falling apart, but he is trying really hard to make something of his life after the apocalypse. 
And there are a lot of things working against that. And one of those things is his the difficulty of forgiveness. And so mm-hmm. that, um, I don't want to say too much more than that, but um, in a very different camera style, he showed, they showed that, um, that uh, spiritual struggle is not a matter of just material economic forces. It's truly spiritual. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I felt like another a dimension of reality was made concrete for me. And I, I thought to assign this to political power or economics or class struggle or uh, any other kind of materialist, and there's lots of theories out there, right? Uh, would be to cheapen what's really happening here. I, I like the fact that, um, and this will be very brief, but it's just that a movie you wanted to single out when right at forgiveness. You know, William Blake is something of one of the presiding spirits of this podcast, you know, but we don't need to think like what would make, if there was something unique about Christianity, like what would it be? It's, it's an interesting question. But for William Blake, it was totally 100% the forgiveness piece. You know, uh, through all eternity, I forgive you, you forgive me. For him, that was the Eucharist. You know, this is the bread, this is the wine. So for, again, somebody looking for, the transcendent, not just in film, but an experience with the transcendent, which can be conveyed by film. I'm very drawn, never heard of those directors, I'll be honest, never heard of that movie, but to watching that myself, because it might be the entrance point uh, that can really change hearts is to like see forgiveness and see how difficult it is. And then you're at least giving somebody an honest uh, uh, ticket. I'll invoke Dostoevsky here, no, a ticket by this, you know, it's gonna be a hard one. But like, this is what we're talking about. We're not talking about a cheapened commodity you can buy, you know, uh, called spirituality and things like that. So I appreciate uh, your sensibilities that, you know, looking for the, these kind of powerful experiences you were drawn to one so concretely dealing with forgiveness. Yeah, well, I, I'm glad to point it to you. That film's about 20 years old now. So, um, and, and it is a European film. And it, you know, uh, is definitely worth checking out for sure and it's worth saying that uh i'm not going to give any spoilers on the movie but there's no guarantee that forgiveness is going to happen (laughs) in this film but the struggle for it and the imperative of it is absolutely made known Mm -hmm. and that's 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 forgiveness between people but there's a whole other dimension to bring up a more contemporary american example is what about forgiving god you know uh, for slights that we feel he has made towards us. <laughs> and um, and the, the temptation would be to say, uh, oh, horrible things that have happened to me are not horrible because God is good. You know, that's kind of the Christian platitude. When in fact, <laughs> I'm sorry, cancer is terrible and we should be very bold to call it terrible, you know? The, the other side of it is, well, you know, blank happens, right? I'm not sure what the rating on this podcast. You can say shit happens on this. Uh, okay. Okay. So shit happens. Right. So um, that's a, a nihilistic answer. Things just happen and you just got to get used to it. Right. There's no God to forgive. You can be angry at God, but you're sort of angry at a void. Right. The in-between is to really be angry at God and to talk back to him the way Moses did. And my friend Richard Middleton has written a book called How to Talk Back to God <laughs> uh, just recently, which I'd recommend. But um it's it's different from not honoring God as as God, but it is saying I don't understand how you, as God, whom I believe you to be, could let this happen. Mm-hmm. And that I'm sorry, that's just a biblical 
pageant of behavior, a pattern, a pageant of patterns of behavior. You know, every prophet does this, right? And even Jesus does this. <laughs> my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, right? right. Um, and so um, to that example that I would point you to is the film Sound of Metal, which came out just two years ago, mm-hmm. about a, a drummer in a, in a kind of avant-garde metal band uh, who loses his hearing. And that's not really a spoiler. That happens in the first 10 minutes of the movie. Um, it's directed by Darius Martyr. And this is his first uh, narrative feature film. He made a feature documentary. It's very good. But um, it's his first narrative feature film. And through a variety of circumstances, I've gotten to know Darius a little bit. We're, we're friends. And um, we had a chance to talk for a couple hours about that movie. And I told him that in recent memory, this is the most powerful film I've seen in recent memory. That's great. And, and part of that is personal because I have a, a congenital hearing loss that I've had all my life. Speaking and, of the crowd here, me too. Yeah, there you go. Okay. So I know what it's like to struggle for communication. And I know what it's like to live a life that's a little bit different in that regard um, from other people. And it, 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 it has deep implications for how you relate to people, how you think, how you see the world. Um, and that film nailed it. I mean, it just completely nailed the experience. But what was also true was I was doing a lot of research on time and cinema at that time. And I said to him, Darius, it seems to me your film is really about time in a lot of ways. He's a timekeeper as a drummer. He's lost his hearing, which is the temporal sense par excellence. You know, brain scientists will tell you there's lots of ways that we work all of our senses and we have lots of senses to keep track of time. But at the core of it, the number one sense is hearing. (laughs) You know, you can see my hands moving, but it's locking in on the sound, right? You can see see my lips moving. It's locking in on the sound and putting those two things together. The sound is much more powerful. And um, it's just uh, a critical sense for perceiving time. And uh, when that's taken away, Man, his whole life. So it becomes a meditation on identity and stuff too. But time is at the center of it. And um, Darius was just elated that I had picked up on that. And he was like, I don't think anybody's noticed that. But I was so meticulous about time in this film. There were only hard cuts in this film. And I did that for a reason because of time and because I needed, you know, he took very few takes. He demanded his actors do lots of rehearsals because it had to happen in the moment, you know, kind of thing. And, and for him, it was a very temporal kind of law in his in his movie about the struggle with time and the fact that you can't turn back time, you can't undo the past, mm-hmm. but what does the future mean? And uh, so for him, it was incredible. And the acting is phenomenal. Um, and even though Darius does not claim a particular faith, I mean, he's very forthright about that. He is very sensitive to spiritual things and he's very, open to the spiritual. And he says, absolutely, I have these notions of eternity in mind, whatever eternity is. He makes no big claims about that, right? But he was not willing to discard this notion of a higher meaning or a higher reality. Um, He doesn't know what it is, but he thought if there's any answer for this poor guy, um, he can't discard that either. So it's really another film about struggle, but it it's in English, no subtitles, <laughs> right? <laughs> and um, and it 
is incredibly powerful moving film. Worth the price of admission getting a, I love it, right? When I haven't heard of this director or anything. You know, oh, well, it was nominated for the Academy Award. I mean, it went yeah. up best picture. Oh, no, I'm thinking of the, the Belgian one in particular. Oh, yeah, yeah. Now, right. This this was a name I'd heard of, but I just didn't follow it. I hadn't seen it yet. So I'm looking forward to that, too. And it's interesting. Now, I want to maybe back up a little bit because uh, you were talking about, you know, this this notion of being, being angry at God, right? Which uh, I think like Bergman and um, Tarkovsky and that generation of filmmakers who lived through World War II, the Holocaust and the, and the rise of communism. I mean, talk about feeling abandoned. Yeah. You know, so we're, and, and I, and I, and I was, it was a while ago, I was talking to somebody, I can't remember who it was, that, that I have to wonder after going what we've been going through for the last two years, and we're still in the middle of that after, I mean, that I, th and I think uh, if you're familiar with the cognitive scientist, John Verveke, he's got this uh, YouTube channel on the meaning crisis. And he's seeing what, you know, psychologically, one of the, the big problems facing the world. And I think that you see this in the, the attraction of a lot of young people to Jordan Peterson, for instance. Yeah, is there is a meaning crisis and people are trying to fill that hole, right? We just, you know, it's, it's, there's such a high level of existential dread in, in the world right now. Yeah. I, and, and I know that there are, are artists and filmmakers out there who are contending with that. Right. Which I, like you said before, Joe, and we might not know about it for 20 years to see who, who really was there, but, but you see it also in literature in, in the post-war era, right. It's the, the, the high modernists who are also dealing with all the, these major issues that confront human beings, which for, for some of them, T.S. Eliot, for instance, led them, to to Christ, but also to uh, transcendence. You know, if you I think about Eliot in the Four Quartets, you know, you, there's a big difference between Eliot and Four Quartets and the Wasteland, right? Yes, yes, for sure. And he moved someplace that way. And I and I and I think that that's what I see with a lot of my students. And you probably see it too, Joe. Is you know the and the, they were talking. I had taught a great course this last year on romanticism and was it, it was mostly women in the class it was all women in the class and uh they they were they felt like they finally felt like talking after what they had been through you know and and they were talking about what resonated in romanticism with them they said and they were they were speaking in religious or theological terms or philosophical terms though not necessarily that they they were believing people some of them were but they were looking for something, yeah. You know yeah. that 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 imparted meaning and purpose to a human life, yeah. to their lives, right? Yeah. And I, I think that, that that's absolutely my experience. I mean, and I, I'm afraid that I, my big worry is that the. The, the, the current cultural climate is not even asking these questions, really, you know, although with certain political crises and stuff, the, the questions are reemerging as they inevitably will, <laughs> inevitably, right. you can only you can only kind of shelve the question of meaning for so long, even culturally. Um, 
Yeah, one of the big theorists in my field, in the film studies field, is a guy named Gilles Deleuze. Mm -hmm. And his, there's a lot, he, <clears throat> he's a big deal, you know, mm -hmm. in terms of film theory. He's still probably the most quoted film theorist. I'm not convinced, having read his cinema books and some of his other philosophy books, I'm not convinced that most people who quote him really grasp the radical ontological claims he's making. Uh, they kind of use his work to, to describe and describe aptly a lot of things that appear to us in cinema, like the way they appear to us. But he's basically saying that the nature of reality, all reality, is that everything's always changing. There's nothing stable at all. Change is the nature of everything. And it's a monistic kind of universe. So if there is a God, the only God there is, is, is what, what he would have called uh, duration in Bergsonian terms, just this mm -hmm. giant change. Right. Um, that's very, that, that there's some alignment with, with, with uh, mystical Christianity there, but there's a stark difference as well. I mean, Augustine uh, would have conceived of it more like there's time and then there's eternity <laughs> that intersects it vertically. And eternity isn't just endless time. It isn't that at all. Eternity is a whole nother order. Right. <laughs> and um, that whole other order mysteriously permeates the universe, right? In ways that we don't completely understand, but we have hints of it. And what that whole other order is, is a stability. <laughs> it is a divine stability. So the answer is not that nothing is stable. It's that only God is stable. And only what God might deem to be stable is stable, <laughs> right? Um, and, and it just preserves this notion of stability and preserves this notion of meaning that flows from that. So there can, Deleuze would say there's no you, right? If you want to say who you are, what you are is a changing element and a large changing equation and what you were was not the you that said who am i you know it's five seconds ago um whereas there's some truth to that right we do change but is there an essence to us is there an identity to go back to revelation that god is holding um how is it possible that both things are true mm -hmm. and that's what i've come to believe i think augustine was right in that uh, maybe more right than even he knew <laughs> as he was kind of trying to feel his way through it. And he's very transparent about that in the confessions. Like he kind of ends every chapter with only you, Oh Lord, no. <laughs> right? like, he just wrote, wrote like 20,000 words on a particular topic or 30,000 words and ends with only you Lord. No, but he made a lot of progress there in understanding something. If only it points you to this other order that interpenetrates us. Now, it, it, this makes me think. Now, I think I used to talk about this with my students in that religion and film class. But I, we used to compare the advent of film as a medium to the invention of stained glass in Gothic cathedrals. <laughs> because there's this, there's something... It's really miraculous if you think about it, that through the medium of light, we see these images shining through, just like in, in stained glass, we have this. So it seems to me that film as a medium kind of is made to reveal transcendence. It's like it's a transcendent medium as it is already. Uh, not that it's always, always like that, right? Yeah. Um, so I wonder, Joe, if you could talk about this, and in in I'm just thinking about 
the quality of film, whether it's digital or or actual film, you know, what I mean, how does does that uh, operate in this in this uh, search for transcendence or the or the, the we can call it the disclosure of transcendence? Well, uh, that's my favorite question. I probably will spend the rest of my career asking it and trying to answer it. I don't know that I've answered it fully. Uh, we mentioned Paul Schrader early on. I think he was one of the first ones to really rigorously pose the question in serious terms, um, in, 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 at least in terms of film form. Lots of people had written about form content. It was assumed that content was the thing. They're going to tell Jesus movies or inspirational stories. And I, mm -hmm. of course, content's very, very important. I wouldn't dismiss it, but I want to know why content shows up in all kinds of forms. Why cinema? Right. You know, that's the formal question. So uh, as I have thought about this, yes, I've thought about the stained glass metaphor. I've thought about the uh, the cathedral uh, metaphor, I, particularly like Orthodox houses of worship uh, sometimes were positioned with the sun, particularly in mind, so that at particular times during the year, like Easter, for instance, they could open up the back doors and at just the right time, the sun would go right down the aisle and illuminate the, uh, you know, the, the mosaics on the wall, um, the Theotokos or whatever, you know, I, but it was all the architecture designed so that there would be a light show. I mean, literally yeah. at high moments. And obviously there was light when the doors were closed as well. So there were different levels of light and suddenly it would be illumined in a way you thought you were in light and it's suddenly, oh, I didn't know what light was until that moment, you know, and they even had a liturgical cry, oh, joyous light, you know, mm -hmm. uh, you could pro you probably know more about this than I do, Michael, but um, that metaphor has struck me as important as well. It creates a space where you live in light. It, because uh, honestly, the light metaphor is important, but it's only part of the equation. What I, the more I studied cinema, the more I realized it's a multi-sensory experience. We talked about sound, but what about touch? And what about uh, your sense of yourself in space? And uh, you, you, there are all different kinds of senses that work together. And the more we study the senses and the sciences, uh, the more we learn that it's a multi-sensory experience. So we have lots more senses besides the classic five that Aristotle talked about, right? Um, and, and so like thermoception is a, a sense of temperature, you know, mm -hmm. there's all kinds of senses that get, um, get that get invoked in particular ways through cinema, maybe not directly, but indirectly doesn't do justice to what happens there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. It's kind of a half feeling or, but, but it's there in a way that it's not in perhaps other media. So um, how does the film do this? What I'm pretty convinced of is we shouldn't look at any film as like a lucky rabbit's foot, you know, where like, if you watch this film, you're gonna have a spiritual experience. It's just too many variables in that equation, mm -hmm. right? And one of those variables might be your own heart. Maybe you just didn't eat enough mm -hmm. <laughs> or didn't sleep enough before you saw it. Or maybe you just haven't had enough experiences to see what's there. And so, you know, I, early in my career was trotting out on Ray Rublev to many bored audiences and was disappointed at the results, except there'd be like one guy. Yeah. Be like that was the most amazing thing I've ever seen. Thank you for showing it. 
And I took so much flack for screening that movie at that particular venue, but that one guy got it, you know. I don't think that one guy was more enlightened than everybody else. I just think that that guy was positioned for that. There may be other films are positioned. So I lean away from the lucky rabbit's foot thing. No film is guaranteed to give you anything. And I'm not sure we should invest films materially with some sort of tokenism or something, a talismanic quality. But what films do is they replicate a lot of how our uh, corporal spatiotemporal experience works and it sort of handshakes with it. It sort of synchronizes with it. And I do believe in, or I've come mostly convinced of what they call a kind of mild simulation theory or embodied simulation theory and film theory, which is the notion that films largely give us simulations of what it's like to experience something, right? And um, we know that it's a simulation. You, know, you, you can go watch a horror movie without worrying that you're gonna be slaughtered by a chainsaw wielding maniac, mm-hmm. right? And part of the pleasure is knowing that it's a simulation. Right. And a lot of my students who are uh, who love horror movies, I've surveyed them regularly. Hold your hands up if you love horror movies. Hands go up. Hold your hands up if you're afraid to go down a dark alley in New York at night. Almost all the same hands go up. (laughs) Now, this is not a scientific. There are people who have studied this. They might say, but I would say it doesn't wash out entirely. But in my anecdotal experience, fearful people like often like horror movies and i suggest that it's because they're given something they can master that they have always feared it's a way of kind of rehearsing that thing they've always feared and try to slowly incrementally gain some mastery over their own fears um there's probably a lot more to it lots of people would suggest that there's books written on it in the same way long answer to your short question in the same way we are primed for spiritual experiences. We are built for spiritual experiences. Our hearts are restless, Augustine says, until they find their rest in God. There's a God-shaped vacuum. You know, that's the, the, the paraphrase of Augustine, right? Okay. Um, and uh, so films as these kind of simulations of our experience present in a controlled environment, it, it, away from the laundry list of things we have to do every day, right? A place to suspend all of that and experience something focused. And if they're really well crafted, right? And they're, and they're made by uh, a director or a team of people, you know, because uh, films are always made by a team, who get the idea that there are things that are more meaningful beyond just what we can touch and, touch and measure, um, then you have the opportunity for people to, to awaken a certain experience that there that is often suppressed in everyday reality. And it's just a very focused environment to kind of show what's always there. And um, some films, you know, it, that can happen in the worst films, actually, if somebody comes at it, you know, the right frame of mind, there might be one redeeming moment in that 95% horrible film, and that might be enough for somebody. But what I'm interested in is, in, is the films by filmmakers, many of which have just been mentioned, that really uh, consistently understand that that's the game, that's the object. This is what we're trying to do. And they're really zeroed in on what does it mean to feel something? And what does it mean when our feeling has meaning? 
not just the words, the concepts, but the feelings. What does it mean to have a transcendent experience? Where do we find those transcendent experiences? How can we have them here in the theater and maybe get a clue as to where they come from and what they mean ultimately? And, and so transcendence in cinema is not limited to a religious film per se by the label. But um, by definition, if it opens up to something that's kind of beyond our sort of ordinary imminent experience, um, and I'm speaking phenomenologically here, what we experience yeah. is imminent, you know, kind of the everyday right. thing, um, or even in the everyday thing, maybe in the everyday thing, suddenly the everyday becomes something more than we ever dreamed it could be, because we don't have the same obligations in that everyday experience in the theater that we do in the everyday life. Right. right. Something opens up. I think that can happen on a formal level, the way it appeals to our feelings and makes us sense things and moves things. It can happen on the narrational level where it steers us towards questions that we've been avoiding or just don't have time for, or only in the most facile way say, yeah, that's true, but I can't comprehend it. And, our, and the filmmakers say, no, try to comprehend it in this moment. You know, the best films, the best filmmakers, Tarkovsky, Kishlovsky, these others are saying, why don't we make sure the narration and the, uh, the formal aesthetic things are all driving at this one space where the most important questions are asked and contemplated, whether or not there's an answer, and there certainly shouldn't be an easy answer, <laughs> right? But there is an answer, maybe. Let's assume there is, right? But we don't know what it is yet. Let's, let's crawl towards something we don't fully understand. That's my best answer to that. Um, we could go into more detail about any dimension of that. Let me ask you a question, Joe, because it relates. This is going to be a little more, um, I don't know if it's even apocalyptic, but the, your, you know, I mentioned reading an article of yours from years back. You know, I'm not going to hold you to the content, but I think it sounds like a theme of all your work. But it was an article on the movie Crash. And you use, a, you have a lot of descriptions in there of how film can take us inward. In a secular society can take us inward, inward. Very evocative. On the other hand, my youngest son, now he's 22. He's saying so many of his friends because of uh, the ubiquitous nature of TikTok can't even uh, you know, have the attention span of movies anymore. And th there's another piece there too, which is um, the media studies. I remember oh, 20 years ago, the Gutenberg Elegies was a book. You know, that the, the, the movement from the book as a metaphor for the self to the movement as you know the computer as the metaphor for self you know i see it with young people looking at themselves that they have inputs and outputs you know a lot of cultural critics were saying that this movement um, that we're seeing primarily you know today we're talking about film but from the book as metaphor to a computer is a flattening so you're you're saying some very profound things about mm -hmm. film and at the same time are we experiencing a flattening and are we experiencing, you know, a shortness of attention? Because my son was dead serious that he says oh, he yeah. has a lot of friends who can't go beyond. They're watching nine hours of TikTok a day. Mm -hmm. You know, I remember being in college that Geraldo Rivera would have this expose that he heard on campuses. Guys were having like as many as eight beers a night. And I don't know about you guys. I was thinking like that's before we even went out. Yeah. <laughs> so that sometimes the media wasn't getting at it. But if, if we saw a news story about how much TikTok young people are watching, I bet you they're not even getting at it. Mm -hmm. It's more than they think. What are your reflections on this in terms of uh, uh, flattening such, and the shortening duration in film? Such a great question. I'm going to really try hard 
not to be the old guy <laughs> get off my lawn hey we had to march five miles through the snow to get to school all that you know although i'm totally that guy yeah, yeah, <laughs> right yeah. because i do see this declining attention span mm -hmm. i think it is absolutely a real thing mm -hmm. and i don't think it's hard to show yeah. empirically i don't think it's hard to show mm -hmm. if we're really interested in knowing whether that's true you can find out pretty quickly it's true mm -hmm. the question is what does that mean for us I, and i think like with every other media shift in human civilization you're going to have pretty serious ups and pretty serious downs to that equation you know so there's been talk about what you know the the terror of uh you know the written word you know what if everybody becomes literate what then they're going to stop trusting the church for answers was that true well in large cases it was <laughs> right in many cases it was church authority you know, really crumbled in in lots of areas on the other hand it did give rise to all kinds of modes of thought and benefits and philosophy and all kinds of things that I think are demonstrably positive. So in these kinds of moments, as a scholar who studied the history of media, it's really important not to overreact and it's important not to underreact. Mm -hmm. So I do worry that Andre Rublev is a three and an hour and 20 minute movie, depending on which cut you're looking at. If you want to read the, the Tarkovsky's original preferred cut, it was almost four hours. So, but the three hour, 20 minute cut is the most common one that's like that's like everest these days in the yeah. 1960s it was like yeah it's kind of long <laughs> right that's like everest now and um so i recognize the difficulty of that because you know, i'm trying to teach students and even adults are struggling with it. and it's russian so it's really hard mm -hmm. i mean culturally they're they just have a greater tolerance for kind of slower moving narratives than we do um, and I worry, I think there are things that are gained by the long haul. There are things that are gained by forcing yourself to sit for three and a half, four hours. Anybody who does it will tell you that's true, but hardly anybody does it and they assume it's bad. So that's a serious problem. And it, the more that deteriorates, um, the less able we will be to to have those experience, some of those experiences that we've had. On the other hand, um, can there be any value in a TikTok video, <laughs> right? There are some who do them better than others. What is that value? Let's identify what that value is. To speak very succinctly, to speak obliquely, to do something that doesn't do what advertising does, which is to just sell you something, mm -hmm. but to rather in the most efficient way, point to a mystery or point to an open equation. And a lot of times that happens through humor. I mean, I think it's universally true that, and I've always told my students that if you're going to make a short film, it's a lot easier to make a funnier short film than a dramatic one. And I've seen some really great dramatic short films, even really short films, but drama is kind of a slow burn thing. It takes history to make drama. Whereas humor is sort of an accident of the moment where something just unexpected happened. I've never thought of that, yeah. Right, I mean, the nature of humor is difference and you can show difference in a second. Mm -hmm. The nature of drama is conflict and any conflict worth its salt is over time. Yeah. Right, so it's, uh, so that's the thing. You can, it, what you're asking yourself usually with a TikTok video is what's the value of humor? Now, there may be other uses beyond humor. So I try to look at the positives of that. And I do think that there are openings through humor 
onto transcendence. But transcendence just sort of looks a little different, you know. Mm-hmm. Are, if you're able to laugh at yourself, truly laugh at yourself in the most humble way, then that's a type of repentance. Right. I agree. That's a type of transcendence. And uh, I get that feeling when I see certain foibles and in movies and even in uh, certain commercials, you know, I I tend to like the Geico commercials, for instance, you know, even though I'm not really interested in insurance, um, you know, it's, it's, um, I I do, uh, there's, there's moments where it cracks open and I ask myself, what's that delight? Is it strong enough to take me to the depths of transcendence? Because I do think that there are depths, right? You know, there are shallow truths and deeper truths. And well, that's going to be largely a matter of how you comprise your life to be open to those things. And somebody who spends seven hours a day on TikTok is not going to be able to do that. I'm sorry. You have just substituted, you have substituted a small part of creation for and a simulated part of that. Uh, for a much, much larger, richer reality. And, and I think what you were saying earlier about the monks getting their hands dirty is absolutely true. I mean, I tell my students, I love the movies. I love television. I love media. Uh, I've even seen maybe one or two TikToks I like. <laughs> right. <laughs> but uh, get that. Um, and my kids love it. And we have discussions about that. I said, but if that's what your life is about, you have lost the power of media because those simulations are only as valuable as the self you bring to those simulations. Right. If the self you bring to those simulations is impoverished, you better start enriching it. And yeah. you're not going to get it by cu- getting caught in a loop of simulations. Does that right. make sense? Well, well what it does. Is valuable as it is that reality is valuable to you. Right. So read and, books, listen to music, go sit in a field for three hours, pray, serve others, serve the poor, get involved in a community, repent, love your family, go visit your grandmother. These things are absolutely as important, if not more important right. than watching TikTok videos. Well, and that's what I think in film. In fact, I had a, that, that romanticism course. I, I wanted to show them uh, the film, what's it called? Bright Star. Do you know that one? Yes. John Keats. Yeah, John Keats. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so, and it was all women. It was directed by a woman. So I, I said, so would you like to watch it in class or you, would, you, would you prefer to watch it on Netflix or something? Because it was on Netflix at the time. And we could just talk. We could just take off one day of class and talk about it the other day. They said, well, it's two hours long. I said, it's a, most movies are, girls. <laughs> just, <laughs> I can't just... I can't sit there for two hours, but, but I think what, I mean, and I noticed the same thing, not only with film, but with, with uh, literature, I mean, I ask you assign a novel, they're like, Oh my God, this is a book. And it's, I had to, it takes hours, but what those two activities do is you can think about them as they're like, in a way aids to contemplation because it gives you a place to focus your attention, whether it's a film or, you know, and you see the people who can't watch the film without checking the phone, right? Um, because, and which robs you of the experience, which nice. if you don't have the, and this is, I've write, written about this a lot, the, the contemplative engagement with things yeah. is yeah. not the only way, but it's a good way to allow transcendence to disclose itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it takes a a lot of, I I don't think this is particular to this generation, 
but students don't believe their teachers a lot of the time, right? So when I was a student, I was told Citizen Kane is the greatest movie that's ever been made. Um, I've seen that movie like eight times now. Um, I'm not convinced it's the greatest movie that's ever been made, <laughs> but I am convinced it is a great movie. Uh-huh. And I can tell you, I've never enjoyed watching it, <laughs> even on the eighth time. Yeah. And I'm saying this in public for the first time. This is the way to get you know, killed as a film scholar, I suppose, you know? Uh, heretic, heretic. The joke in film school was if you see, get, have a test and you don't know the answer, just put Citizen Kane and you got at least a 50% chance. <laughs> yeah. and, um, so what happened is by the eighth time, each time I'm incrementally seeing more and I keep watching it and I will watch it a ninth time because so many people who are smarter and wiser and have longer lived longer and thought deeper than I have, have told me I need to see it again. I have to trust those people. That's how I roll. Yeah. And, and that was true with classical music. My mother is a classically trained pianist conservatory. She was a piano teacher her whole life, her whole career. And she got me, she, 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 I grew up with classical music in my home because there's always piano lessons going on and I hated it. I was just like, classical music sucks, man. I mean, it just takes too long and there's no beat and there's no, there's no catchy riffs and, you know, heavy metal was the thing. And, um, and so, you know, I just wanted nothing to do with classical music. I thought it was incredibly boring. And, um, then she got me a cassette tape because that's what we listened to back then of the Messiah. Uh, Handel's Messiah and got me a tape deck. And she said, uh, she said, you can, I got you this as a present and I'm going to let you buy tapes of your own to listen to music you want to, but I want you to promise me that you will listen to this one first for at least a month, you know, like, and I had one tape and I had a new jam box is what we called it. Right. Mm -hmm. I played that thing over and over and over again and just tried largely because I wanted to get other music. So it was a bait and switch, man. And suddenly it opened up to me. I mean, I don't remember how long it took, but it took a while. It does. And all of that, and I realized it would not have opened up to me if it hadn't been for those first 10, 12 years of hearing all that music in my home and hating it. But it seeped into my bones and I started to understand the complexity was there, the complexity and the simplicity, right? And how the two worked together and I'm sorry, some joys, often the greatest aesthetic spiritual joys come over the long haul. You just have to sit with it and you have to trust those who are smarter, wiser, and have lived longer to uh, guide you in what what is worth your time. Mm -hmm. That's good. uh, We should probably start wrapping it up, but if I could ask you, Joe, what would you... Well, well, what films might, might you suggest that, say, say young people who are, like my son, for instance, uh, he's 22. When he was 15, he was convinced he wanted to be a marksman in, 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 the, in the army. I'm like, and I, okay, I have, to re, I have to redirect this energy. And so I would take, I would bring home these, these art films. They say, you want to watch this? You were bringing home American Sniper. You were bringing Well, he watched that and, he, okay. and he's really, this kid is a great shot. I mean, he's, yeah. but I, so I, I, I started bringing home these art films. Like, hey, you want to watch this with me? Okay, it's better than going to bed. So we'd watch these films. And then he starts getting into it. Then he starts researching it. And so if, a, you know, a student like that, 
and, and this persisted even to today, but now he wants to be a physicist. Um, what films might you suggest that, that some of those young people check out? As an well, I definitely think they should look at Sound of Metal. Um, I think that is an accessible film that most people will find interesting and, and meaningful. Uh, they, they should definitely uh, be looking at that. Uh, gosh, I'm trying to think of uh, what films I have seen recently the, uh, that, that were really kind of worth, worth the time, you know. Um, I don't know, well, what films have you seen recently that, I mean, Sound of Metal is one that sticks out because it's the one that I've been kind of obsessing over recently. Yeah. What did I see? Well, I have, what have I seen lately? Lately, um, well, I I don't know what I've seen recently that I could suggest. But what I what comes to mind is when I taught that that course. I think the only film we did every semester was Wings of Desire. Okay. Yeah. And I'll never forget showing it one time, and it was a morning class I think, or and then. Phil, the film ends, the students leave. And then I went into the courtyard of the college. I was going to my office and I saw this, this young woman who was in the class sitting there. I said, hey, what's going on? Because I just realized I have to rethink my life. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and that was my experience when I saw that film. And, and that's what, what, you know, gave me great uh, encouragement as a human being to see what art can do once and like you said you once you know somebody's and this is why i show films like that in college because i figure most of these kids are never going to go see films like this when they're, when they're not here so if, if i have them here what 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 would i like to share with them to at least hope like you do with with, with rublev right like it was that one guy who got it right so what would, what would you share with them and that and that's uh and another thing that really stuck out with me, um, you know this film, uh, Paisan. Do you know that one? Yeah, sure. By uh, Rossellini. That was I, was, I was struck by how that resonated with students. Which you wouldn't, you know, wouldn't, I wouldn't have occur yeah. occurred to me beforehand. But they really got into it. Yeah. They, the, the several times they showed it. It's always surprising what they might discover. I mean, you know, we talked about the downsides of the TikTok generation. Uh, the upside is like, um, you know, when I pull up my daughter's spot, my daughter's really in music and she makes, writes her own music and you know, records stuff that I wanted to do when I was a kid, but never had the equipment. And now it's just so easy. Yeah. She's got a lot of talent and I pull up her Spotify playlist and I'm like, so you're like listening to Zeppelin and Fleetwood Mac and whatever, you know, <laughs> where did you get all this? She's like, oh, it's just out there on the internet. There's not a sense in this generation that they have to stick to a particular thing that the radio gods are, are selling. I agree. Yep. Right. I mean, they have an incredible access and they take advantage of it. And um, my daughter's musical tastes have been cultured way better than mine were when I was her age because she's had access. And I think the same thing can happen with movies. I've, I've been surprised, you know, when people responded to, kind of older fashioned things. My, my, my son really responded to the PBS show, All Creatures Great and Small, that's been kind of revived, you know? We were talking about that just before you joined like us. Yeah. It's yeah. so old fashioned, yeah. it's a small town, but it's just like good 
it's not like the greatest show ever, but it's good ensemble writing with characters who have something meaningful at stake and they're different and they have conflicts and they have resolutions. And it's like classic textbook stuff, but it's done well. And it's surprising how rare that is. And here he responded to it. I was just thunderstruck that he liked it. Um, he's, he's 13, he was 12, just turned 13. Um, one other film, I'm gonna put in two films and then I do have to go, all right? But, and, and this is a little bit um, selfish on my part because I know the filmmakers, but I can tell you that my children have watched these movies. And my, my daughter's 17, my son's 13, and they liked them. And um, one is a film called Electric Jesus, which is made by Chris White, and it's available streaming all kinds of places. Okay. And it is a story of a striper wannabe heavy metal Christian rock band. We know that and type well. And it is about as accurate as I can imagine, partly because Chris and I are the same age and we both, this was our dream, you know, we both uh, wanted to be in that band and headline, you know, opening act for Striper and all that stuff. And I'm admitting that in public the first time. You're getting a lot of confessions. <laughs> um, Chris That's absolutely right. nails all the earnestness of that. And he doesn't cast a snobby eye on it. But at the same time, there's a lot of incredibly ridiculous. There has to be. Or immature by age, immature by faith and theology, immature in many respects. And he looks back with humor and humility and not a small amount of hope on um, an utterly delightful and simple and well-meaning but wrong-headed adventure, <laughs> you know, uh, an enterprise. And yeah, it's yeah. just, it's great. It's got uh, Brian Baumgartner from the, from the office in it. And, you know, the guy played Kevin in the office and it, it's terrific. Um, the second film, uh, that's that's a comedy. It's very light. My daughter loved it. She was totally on board with it. Um, and uh, it, the second one is a film called Minari, or I think it's pronounced Minari uh, by Isaac Chung. And that was nominated for the Academy Best Picture uh, same time, the same year that Sound of Metal was nominated. And what Isaac did was made kind of a story of his own experience about uh, a Korean family that relocates to the Midwest to be farmers. <laughs> Just wanted to get the pure American experience, self-starting, my plot of land, my business, you know, integrate into the whitest part of America. So they're like the only Asians, it's like, you know, and that was his life, his experience. And um, faith is a part of that. It's not the central part of the story, but it's a part of that. But of course, racism is a part of that and the dealing with the elements and the bad crops and the all kinds of struggles that go along with that. And it is a fantastic drama. I've seen that one written about, about and I still have yet to see it. So oh, you really should. It's incredibly moving. And the characters are incredibly well drawn. The performances are terrific. And you know, what does it mean to be a family and have a family and try to hold a family together? I mean, that's mm -hmm. really what essentially the film is about. It's not a small thing to have a family. That's great. Well, thank you, Joe. A uh, little disappointed. We I want wanted to get to Kislovsky, but maybe we'll have you back sometime. Yeah, focus just on that. Yeah. We could have a whole episode on Kishlovsky. And I, and I have to say, uh, your book, I, which I've been reading, is just wonderful and it's beautifully written. So well, thank, thank you, you for that. Thank you very okay. much. All right. Well, well, this is the Regeneration Podcast. We will see you all next week. And thanks to our guest, Joe Kikasola. Uh, with, with Regeneration Goes to the Movies. 
All right. All right. Thanks, care. everybody. We'll see you next week. All the best. Bye.